SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM, 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. Follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC. Follow him at CJ O'Gara. And Connor, you know what? I don't know how much you enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday. I'm guessing you spent a lot of it with carpal tunnel syndrome like I did instead of enjoying extra on the pumpkin pie. Wait, I, I was in a, a food coma for four days. Did, did something happen that I missed? Yeah, one or two things happened, and very little of it had to do with Auburn upsetting Alabama in the Iron Bowl. That was when the news just got started. It's amazing how quickly the window closed on that being something to talk about. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you're going to have to fill me in on everything that, uh, that went down because, like I said, the Thanksgiving food coma was uh, in effect all weekend for me. Well, I'm used to doing the heavy lifting on this show, so I better get my shoulders ready. The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by SweetHop.com. Georgia and Auburn are set to face off at the brand-new Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta this weekend for the SEC championship game. However... Many fans of other schools in the best conference in America, they have bowl games to look forward to. Alabama and Kentucky and LSU and Mississippi State and Missouri and South Carolina and Texas A&M, all bowl eligible. Now is the time to start thinking about taking your family and friends to a bowl game. Thanks to SweetHop.com, you can get out of the crowd and into a private luxury suite. There you can experience your team from the best sight lines in that entire stadium. And trust me, I've done the tour. It is sensational. Check out all postseason bowl game availability at SweetHop.com today. That's S-U-I-T-E-H-O-P.com. All right, Connor, we have to start with the absolute dumpster fire at Tennessee right now. I have never seen a college football story like this. I know you've never seen a college football story like this. What went on on Rocky Top the last couple of days? It's just positively jaw-dropping. This is mob mentality. This is social media run amok. I cannot believe what we are witnessing with the volunteers right now. I can't believe it, but at the same time, I can in that I feel like we were sort of building to this point. We were we were in such a such a social media frenzy with this whole Tennessee hiring situation that when you look back on it, I guess it, it kind of makes sense that something like this happened where you had a Twitter mob just break out over the hiring, over the rumored hiring, and then prevent it before it ever even officially happened. I, and I don't even know if we can say that this officially happened because the deal was apparently signed and backed out of, but given the fact that Tennessee had had this reaction, Vol Twitter had this reaction throughout the hiring process and everything was such a big deal with the, the groomers and all that stuff, we were, we were trending in this direction. So I think this was more of a buildup, and I don't think it was as much of like a come-out-of-nowhere moment. But at the same time, you're just sitting there like, this, this is real life. Like, this isn't just something you're watching on TV this is act, this is somebody's job, somebody's reputation that's being thrown completely under the bus, all because of the public reaction. So, you know, I saw somebody yesterday that that came out and said, 
it's it's weird to think that we live in a culture now where you have to win Twitter before you win the job. And I said in response, I said, no, you, you don't have to win Twitter. You just can't lose it in historically awful fashion the way Tennessee did because this thing was just a complete and total mess from the beginning. All I can hope right now is that this doesn't set some sort of precedent and this is going to happen at other programs going forward. Now, I know that Tennessee was a real serious Petri dish with what's been going on there the last year, year and a half. But let's spin this to, let's say, Mississippi State. Now, the Bulldogs are hurting right now. You lose Dan Mullen, probably the best coach you've ever had. Eight straight bowl games, positively unheard of in Starkville. He leaves and goes to Florida. Now, I have to credit the folks in Starkville because there hasn't been a lot of whining, a lot of crying, a lot of cursing Mullen out the door. I think they realized they were lucky to have him for that nine-year stretch, and they probably wish him well, even though he's now a conference foe. But let's say that Joe Moorhead is a candidate for this job, the offensive coordinator at Penn State. You know what he does very well. And Jeremy Pruitt, the defensive coordinator at Alabama, he's a candidate for this job, and he seems qualified as well. What happens if it ends up being Jeremy Pruitt who takes this job. But Mississippi State, the hashtag Hail State types on Twitter decide they don't want him. And they're used to Dan Mullen and an offensive guy. They want Moorhead instead. And they decide just to rise up and revolt and storm campus and say, no, Jeremy Pruitt's not good enough. I know that we doesn't have the Penn State stain on him like we had previously with Greg Schiano, But are we getting to that point where, like you said, if you don't convince Twitter this is a good idea first, you might not even get to the point where the ink can be dry on the contract. It's weird to think about something like that because I think what this felt like, and I don't want to assume things, but this is just what it felt like from an outsider's perspective, was that Vol Twitter, being Vol Twitter, decided, okay, the reports are coming out. Let's try and I want to know every single thing possible about Greg Schiano. They do their Wikipedia search. You know, a lot of people are Wikipedia guys, not book guys, not going to fault them for that. They do their Wikipedia search, and they immediately see the Jerry Sandusky stuff. They see the controversy. They see that he was even linked in, in association with this based on a hearsay rumor that wasn't even used in a trial against Jerry Sandusky. Third-degree hearsay, by the way. Exactly. Wasn't even used. But automatically to them, that screams association. All that did was pour gasoline on a fire. For a guy that wasn't welcome in this situation to begin with, that was presented as like new information. And all of a sudden, more and more people are learning about this. And you're even seeing state representatives didn't like the Shiano hire in the first place. Then I heard the Sandusky stuff and was like, no way. The Shiano hashtag stemmed from that. And you're looking at a guy who, I mean, let's be honest, he was not exact. This, this was not brand new information. This has been out there for a while. Urban Meyer has stood by this guy. Bill Belichick has stood by this guy. I mean, Urban Meyer came out and said last year he was offered that Shiano was offered two big-time jobs. One of those was believed to be Oregon, and Shiano turned him down. So all these Tennessee people that are coming out and saying, well, if he was such a great candidate, why doesn't he have a head coaching job by now? Dude wanted to stay at Ohio State. He wanted to get the stain of the Tampa Bay Bucks mess out of the way, and he wanted to build something at Ohio State, and he was waiting for the right opportunity. He thought Tennessee was that right opportunity. A lot of people thought that Tennessee opportunity was right for him, but Tennessee volunteer fans came out and just blew this out of the water and made something that wasn't into something that is. And I know people are saying that 
he's got he must have all these ties to writers and he must be best friends with all these people this isn't about that this is this is about something way more than that i've never spoken to greg Schiano in my life i owe that man nothing but i at least owe him the decency of not accusing him of a crime that he was never even charged with in court and was nothing more than a third party hearsay discussion that was had that was found in court documents this, this is not something where you're, you're trying to stand for your moral ground. If Bill Belichick is, is in this same situation, Bill Belichick is, is being rumored to have the job at Tennessee, and he has the same exact association with the, Sandu- with the Sandusky trial that, that Greg Schiano does, do you think Tennessee fans are having this reaction? No, absolutely not. And that's, that's my biggest problem with all this, is that they, they took something where they didn't agree with it, and then they found a way to just make it a bigger deal than it was just so that they can pretend like they were standing for something when really they were standing for a football coach that they didn't want. You know, let's make this even closer to home for Tennessee fans. Let's say, again, this is all just speculation, not even speculation. It's just a hypothetical. Let's say that John Gruden had some sort of stain on his personal resume. Let's say five years ago he had a domestic violence situation at home. Maybe it was nothing sinister, but maybe, you know, it was a argument gone awry and his wife called the cops and they had to show up to the Gruden household and who knows exactly what happened. Do you really think that Tennessee would have said no to John Gruden? Do you really think that they would have gone to campus and spray painted dirty things all over the rock and say no, no? Of course they wouldn't because he would have been a dream hire. He's the guy who's supposed to come home and save the program. You're exactly right. This was a convenient excuse. But how this happened is positively terrifying. I understand it's 2017. But essentially, as I see it, what happened was you had one person who went out there and spray painted the rock. And everyone's seen the photograph. It said Greg Schiano covered up child rape at Penn State. No, number one, there's absolutely no evidence to prove that is the, that is the, that, that happened. Zero. He has denied it. Other people have denied it. And his link to this is very, very small and minuscule. I wrote it in my column uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I'm sorry, Monday afternoon. Greg Schiano had about as much to do with the Penn State scandal as an air traffic controller had to do with 9-11. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He knew nothing about this, chances are. But you had that spray painting situation at The Rock. Then that photo shows up on Twitter. And then it gets shared a million times. And now all of a sudden, the social media mob has a cause. And everything is very black and everything's very white. There's no gray area. There's no time to do any actual investigation and find out facts. All we hear is Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, Greg Shianu, let's go take our torches to campus. That's what happened. And then you have... Uh, Clay Travis who gets involved and then you have all these politicians who know nothing about football they get involved and the whole thing just completely spiraled out of control it took a couple of hours and the power of social media to make what may have actually been a decent hire now Greg Schiano is not warm and cuddly by any stretch of the imagination but he's a good football coach with a pretty good resume and a lot of people vouching for him I know he's had a bump or two along the road the Tampa Bay Bucks situation didn't go well But this is a good football coach who probably could have done some good things there. But in a couple of hours, you've got an athletic director and embattled athletic director in John Curry, who A, is ready to make a hire, and now B, has to take the offer off the table because social media told him to do so. It's positively terrifying that it actually came to fruition like this. 
just to clarify, wasn't it Shiano's people that backed out? They were, I think it was a Bruce Feldman reported that Shiano's people were reportedly spooked from this. So I, I want to make sure that we get. That we I, get you know what? It, it's certainly possible that's the case, but Tennessee will say they took the offer off the table right. and Shiano's people will say that they backed away. Everyone has to protect their own interests. It's just like Chip Kelly. You know, Tennessee right. is telling everybody that, no, we never talked to Chip Kelly. But Chip Kelly's saying, yeah, they contacted me, but I wasn't interested. Everybody has to prove that their point is what matters, and they'll never tell exactly what the truth is, and we'll never truly find out. So I think that's a moot point, but please continue. And let's, let's back up, because Tennessee fans that had a problem with Shiano in the first place, I get it if you, you know, you're not crazy about a head coach hire. So do I. Right, exactly. That's... <laughs> That's the question that we're that we haven't really been asking. We haven't really had a, had a had a chance to really ask that at this point yet. Is that why are you so upset with with Greg Schiano's credentials? People are blasting the Rutgers stuff and looking at his overall record and saying, "Oh, he's twenty games under five Immaterial. Oh, ridiculous! First of all, the Big East is not what it was in the final couple of years. There was actually good teams in that conference, like Louisville and West Virginia and Cincinnati and Pitt. And the fact that he was able to average eight wins per game in his final seven seasons at Rutgers, he got him in the top ten. This is Rutgers. Rutgers was an even bigger doormat before Shiano got there than after he left. I think people are so, so underestimating the job that he was able to do there. Everybody in New Jersey knows, in the state of New Jersey, knows how good of a football coach he was and how he developed a habit of turning out NFL talent. I mean, you could even go back to his defensive coordinator's days back at the U when he was building you know, that program, helping build that program into the U 2.0. People forget that he was, you know, he was responsible for a lot of the defensive back talent that came out and went to the NFL. Of course, he last year had three Ohio State defensive backs drafted in the first round. I mean, this isn't a slouch. This is not a guy who was, oh, yeah, he's just another coordinator who, you know, oh, yeah, by the way, he's a coordinator who didn't really do that well at Rutgers. He failed in the NFL, so why do we want him now? Like I said before, I, I have on you know on good authority that he was offered that job at Oregon and he turned him down. I mean, this is not something where we're looking at a guy who was just oh maybe kind of considered for a couple jobs, but he's you know been stuck at Ohio State and he just can't get that head coaching job. And Tennessee was the first one to come out and offer him. That's not true at all. I mean, the the amount of of, of false information that's out there about this guy that's been just totally torpedoed into whatever the vol narrative wants to be is just ridiculous at this point and there's there was no salvaging it and that's that's the tough thing to stomach if you're John Curry is that you let this thing run amok big time and the fact that you publicly whiffed on so many other candidates is what led to this and that's maybe the biggest mistake that he made in all this is that that information got out there and the fact that he was willing to take those big swings he missed in those big swings and Shiano seemed like the, the fourth or fifth option because he probably was, and that's what started the mob in the first place, and it only just you know spiraled from there. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think this is the most delusional fan base, certainly in the SEC, and maybe in all of college football, 
by the way, there are 130 programs. I think this was a culmination of just the volunteer fans being way too frustrated that they think they're a top 10 job. They think they're a destination uh, in college football and one of the best places to coach. And they tell me about the stadium and the weather and the Rocky Top and the history and what have you. This is not a top 10 job in America. It's a fringe top 20 job. And considering what's transpired recently, I don't know if it's a top 30 job anymore. This is the fourth coaching search in the last 10 years. The fourth. The first one resulted in Lane Kiffin. I know it sounds like in retrospect he was the first choice, but let's not forget that he lasted a year and a half quite unspectacularly with the Oakland Raiders, and they couldn't wait to get rid of him. He was not exactly a hot commodity on the coaching carousel. And then that left after one year, he goes back to USC. And then you bring in Derek Dooley, three years, abject failure, complete abomination. Five years of Butch Jones. That didn't quite go well. Dooley was about the third or fourth choice. Jones was about the third or fourth choice. And then Shiano felt like the third or fourth choice. And they're just tired of it. And why isn't John Gruden taking this job? And why did Charlie Strong turn us down five years ago? And why does Scott Frost not want to talk to us? Why does Chip Kelly not want to talk to us? Why did Dan Mullen say yes to Florida and no to Tennessee? They had just had it. They didn't like Shiano. He wasn't a candidate at Florida. He wasn't a candidate last year at Texas, or at least we didn't hear about it. So they're ticked off. And then they see this Penn State stuff. It's a very convenient narrative. No, no, no. We value children around here. Oh, by the way, they'll probably hire Bobby Petrino because they're off their moral high ground if they can get a guy who can win. It's it's unprecedented. I mean, that's that's what we're looking at with this job. And you know, I, I said from the jump, I had a feeling Tennessee was going to do this, was that they weren't even going to take those group of five candidates seriously. And now some of those group of five candidates that they haven't even been, you know, room, you know it hasn't be, even been reported that they've been talking to them, I think are tremendous candidates. Why is it Mike Norvell, a guy that should be getting this job right now? He's the guy I've been talking about from day one, and you never even hear his name mentioned. And he's he's at Memphis, and he's crushing it right now. I mean, that's a 10-win program that's going to face Scott Frost in the AAC championship. They're a team that beat UCLA this year. Like, why are why are we why is Norvell not not considered a guy right now? And he, even Frost. I mean, did Tennessee put out the full court press to go and get Frost, even in the same way that Florida tried to do? No. I mean, the the, the refusal to look at Group of Five candidates because Butch Jones was a Group of Five candidate tells me that they are weighing public perception so heavily on this hire because they know if they bring in a sexy group of five candidate, all Tennessee fans are just going to say, great, it's Butch Jones 2.0, and they're not going to want to get behind that. And now this thing has lost so much control. Uh, th- this has completely j- gotten away from John Curry, and I really don't know like what direction they can go to next that will satisfy Tennessee fans because I don't think Bra- Jeff Brom is leaving Purdue I don't think that this is a situation where they're going to go after a Kevin Sumlin or a Les Miles or something like that. I don't know what makes Vols fans happy at this point. Is it is it even T. Martin? Like, are, are we looking at a guy like him as somebody who would be able to take over that job even though he hasn't been a head coach? I mean, where are we at with this search? Where do you see this thing shaking out? I think T. Martin is probably going to be the choice in the end because he does have Rocky Top ties, obviously, national championship winning quarterback in 1998, and he is an offensive coordinator at USC. Oh, by the way, SEC types don't pay too much attention to the Pac-12. It's not like T. Martin has this bulletproof reputation as an OC in the Pac-12. There are plenty of Trojan fans who will be 
perfectly happy helping him pack his bags if he wants to go back home to Tennessee. It's not like they believe he's sensational at what he does and they can't let him get away. But if you're a guy like Mike Norvell at Memphis or you're a guy like Chad Morris at SMU, this is your opportunity. You are in prime pouncing position to take a big-time job and to double your salary and to give your family job security for the rest of your life and to be a name guy in a Power 5 league at a big-time program. This is your chance to cash in. Why would you choose to cash in at Tennessee right now based on what you're seeing, based on the vitriol from the fan base? And the failures they've had the last decade or so and the unrealistic expectations and the belief that they're much higher in the pecking order than they really are. Do you really want to go there, start off one and three your first season with a bunch of garbage players and then get your name spray painted all over the rock? No. Why would anybody want this job right now? You're lucky T. Martin has the the Tennessee background and he's sympathetic to his alma mater. But when this coaching search started, and you had your top 10 list of potential candidates, if he's anywhere higher than seventh, I'll be shocked. Absolutely. And, you know, you're you're looking at a job right now where, yeah, you can talk about people filling the stadium, but you can also talk about the fact that this is a program that did not win a conference game this year. I mean, for crying out loud, Rutgers won a conference game this year. We're, we're sitting here talking about a Tennessee team that, you know, thinks it's still a top 10, top 15 job. And I'm not big on ranking jobs because I think that it depends on fit for the specific candidate. And I don't think that necessarily ranking all the jobs makes total sense. But, I mean, why, why is this job attractive for, for anybody right now? If you don't have Tennessee ties, why, why are you going into that situation given what you could be associated with and given the fact that they ran out a guy who went who won nine games in back-to-back seasons even though he took over a program that was in the dumpster and now you inherit a program that's in the dumpster? For me, there are programs that are just way more attractive than Tennessee right now. And if I am a hot head coaching candidate moving forward even, if we're talking about this in a couple of years, why am I willing to put myself through that when there are going to be other opportunities available? Hiring a coach is more difficult than people realize, and it takes the right fit. It takes timing. It just takes the perfect scenario for both parties. And right now, there's just not. It, there just doesn't seem to be that perfect scenario for either parties to make this thing work. And that's that's the troubling thing. And the longer this thing keeps going, you know, the, the reason Sunday unfolded the way that it did and it was so crazy was because of this early signing period. We've talked about that on this podcast about how that was going to expedite this entire process. And now, if you're Tennessee, you're sitting there and you're watching all these SEC jobs get filled, and you're thinking, man, we got a recruiting class that's falling apart, we got a team that's falling apart, and we don't even have a coach. What 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 are we going to do with this with this mess that we've created? And it's only going to keep getting worse as time progresses and more people continue to turn this down. South Carolina has been to the SEC title game more recently than Tennessee. Missouri has been to the SEC title game twice, by the way, more recently than Tennessee. Volunteers fans need to come to grips with the fact that that is not a premier job anymore. Maybe it was once upon a time. Maybe Philip Fulmer, a career Tennessee guy through and through for 16 years, made that a premier program in America. It's not anymore. They don't like that. It's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's just a fact. Please, let's move on and get off Rocky Top. If you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, then you know the South loves football, and you know what the South also loves? Crystal Burgers. That's right. 
Crystal, the home of the classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year, and they are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college, way after midnight. It is still just 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents each. And best of all, Crystal is taking care of our readers and listeners this fall. Text SDS to 37793. You're going to get two free crystals and a drink. So you've got free crystals. You've got 79 cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. Stop by your local crystal today. Okay, Connor, let's wash off that creamsicle orange stain and move on to Florida and to a lesser degree, Mississippi State. As we alluded to earlier, Dan Mullen basically had his choice. Am I going to go to Tennessee? Am I going to go to Florida? He had an offer in place at Tennessee. It looked like that was going to happen. But then the Gators called and he made his choice. It seems like an obvious one. It's odd that Dan Mullen was choice number three on Florida's list after Chip Kelly, after Scott Frost. But I believe this is the best fit. I really think this is a home run hire. If I am Tennessee, if I am Georgia, if I'm Florida State, I'm very nervous. Oh, absolutely. I think I think you, you probably could have made the argument that Mullen was a better fit than Chip Kelly. No question. Yeah, I mean, Chip Kelly was the splashy hire because of the NFL stuff, because of the fact that he had such such success at Oregon. But he wasn't a proven commodity in the Southeast, and Dan Mullen absolutely is. He is a winner through and through. The fact that he has been able to establish himself as the best coach in Mississippi State history is incredible to think about in, a, in such a short time, too. And, you know, I, we, we often talk about this, and we've talked about this on this podcast, is programs like to overcorrect. They like to look at what plagued the last, the last era of a coach of, of a coach's tenure and say, what can we do to change that? We can't have the same complaints continue into from one coaching era into another. And for Florida, it was obvious. The quarterback play and the offense was horrendous. Okay, so you bring in Dan Mullen, a guy who just cranks out three-star quarterbacks, just ha- takes three-star quarterbacks and turns them into stars. That's what he does. And given the fact that, of course, you know he's got the track record already at Florida, having already worked with Scott Strickland was huge, too. The timing for him maybe just made a little bit more sense. How much of that had to do with the fact that his season ended in kind of a sour note, we don't know. Um, But for whatever reason, Dan Mullen decided, this is my time, this is the opportunity that I've been waiting for. And for Florida, you've got to just be thankful that he did because I I made the reference, Florida was at an 0-2 count. Florida swung and missed at its first two pitches and basically hit a home run on an 0-2 count. And Dan Mullen is, to me, the guy that can, can turn that program around in a hurry and can take that offense to heights that it hasn't seen since the Urban Meyer era. Now, anybody who's listened to me on either this show or various radio stations across the country knows that I'm a little surprised that this came together. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Dan Mullen deserves this. I think he's a perfect fit. But nine years into it at Mississippi State, he seemed awfully comfortable. He was very well paid. And as I have said a hundred times before, he's going from a low-pressure situation in Starkville to a very high-pressure situation in Gainesville. The expectations are going to be very, very different. But the specific question I want to ask you is on the recruiting front. 
He's going to a state from a state in Mississippi that is okay to recruit. He's going to Florida, which is the best state in the country to recruit. But let's not forget that at Mississippi State, you know what? You get a Jeffrey Simmons, a five-star kid, about once every three or four years. Yeah, you'll get a Kylan Hill, a four-star running back, you know, every other year or so. But primarily, it's three-star guys, it's two-star guys, it's Juco transfers, it's some walk-ons here and there. And he made that happen. Dan Mullen made a lot of lemonade during his time at Mississippi State. How is he going to transition to Florida from a recruiting perspective? Because all of a sudden, those guys he couldn't touch before, he's going to be able to get them. And it's different recruiting four- and five-star kids versus the three-star kids. It's a different animal altogether. Is he going to vibe with these guys? Is he going to be able to attract them? Because part of his MO is taking the kids, the diamonds in the rough, the needles in the haystack, and turning them into solid SEC players versus this five-star kid from right in the backyard who's expected to be a stud as a true freshman. It's a different breed of animal a little bit. That's one question. It's a minor one, but it is a question Dan Mullen's going to have to answer. Can he show up to Florida and just be this dominant recruiting monster? Because what he did in Starkville, he was doing it with classes in the 20s and 30s. No, you're right. And that's something that people probably aren't going to look at because they would assume that, okay, if he's able to do this at Mississippi State, then obviously with better talent, he's going to be able to do even bigger things at, at Florida, of course. But you're right in that this day and age of recruiting, it's one thing to get the Nick Fitzgeralds who are recruited by Tennessee Chattanooga, as he said with the cigar. In his Love that quote. Love that. One of the best sound bites I've ever heard. It's one thing to take that kid and to take his mindset and say, all right, here's how I'm going to break you down and here's how I'm going to build you up. It's another to get a five-star kid who's been going to every quarterback camp in the country, who's been told how perfect he is, how he can go star at this school, this school, he's going to be a first-round draft pick, and say, kid, this is what I need to do to get you to succeed. Here is how I'm going to maximize your potential, but you got to listen to me because I know what I'm doing. That's a different animal, and that is a challenge that he absolutely faces because I do think that he's going to be able to recruit well. I mean, he recruited well while he was a coordinator uh, at while well, he's an offensive coordinator at Florida, of course, but it's a different animal when you're a head coach. And he was starting to get those more talented t- kids to come into Mississippi State. If you look at his recruiting numbers towards the end of his tenure in Starkville, he was trying to get in the right direction. He was starting to get more of those Jeffrey Simmons kids. So I do think that he was, you know, it's not like he's never worked with a five-star kid before. He, he knows how to manage talent. But that dynamic, that little dynamic right there, is going to be maybe what defines his tenure in Gainesville because he's not going to get a bunch of three-star quarterbacks to come in there. I mean, he's getting kids that are going to be recruited from all over the place, and they're going to want to come play for him. I absolutely think that's going to be the case. How he manages that challenge and overcomes it, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. And if Florida becomes a new cradle of quarterbacks, I mean, shoot, I think a a lot of Gator fans would welcome that right about now. Yeah, the quarterback situation is going to be very, very interesting because indulge me here for a minute. Dak Prescott, he was lucky to get a third star in high school. There wasn't a big-time program that wanted him to play quarterback. Yes, he could have gone to LSU. They wanted to make him a tight end or a linebacker. He shows up to Mississippi State. He redshirts. And then as a freshman, yeah, he gets a little playing time, but he's not the starter. As a redshirt sophomore, third year in the program, he's still not the starter week one eventually becomes a starter, and then his junior and senior year, he becomes an All-American caliber quarterback, and he did the amazing things that he did. Nick Fitzgerald, 
not really heavily recruited, had no chance to go to a similar program and play the game's most important position. He shows up. He redshirts behind Dak Prescott. As a redshirt freshman, he doesn't see the field. He's behind Dak Prescott. And you're saying what you're saying is correct. Dan Mullen can go to these unheralded kids and these kids that have something to prove and say, yes, I can make you play one day. I can make you really good one day. But you have to be patient. You have to sit behind this guy. You have to run the scout team. Is that going to be the case in Gainesville? Because he's going to show up and apparently on National Signing Day, he's going to get Matt Corral, who's a four-star quarterback out of Long Beach Poly in California, very, very highly recruited. There's a lot of experts out there who believe he's a five-star caliber kid. Can you have the same conversation with him? Is Matt Corral going to show up in red shirt? and then sit out and not really get a chance to start until his third year in the program. That's a different conversation with a four- or five-star kid than it is a two- or three-star kid. That is going to be very, very interesting to watch, and I can't wait to see how that unfolds. And the patience also has to be with Florida fans. If you really want Dan Mullen to be your guy, you can't expect him to have your quarterback be Dak Prescott on day one. It's not going to happen. You've got to be willing to give him time to say – this is the guy that I'm going to invest my, my strength in. This is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say this is the guy that we're, we're going to build into the next stud quarterback of Florida. If he's not throwing three touchdown passes in his first game, you can't be saying, well, is Dan Mullen the guy? Is he really as hyped up as he was supposed to be? Blah, blah, blah. You've got to give it a little bit of time because there are a lot of Florida fans that immediately, when Felipe Franks struggled against Michigan, said, this isn't the guy. He's not going to be the guy to lead this program. And maybe part of that stems from the fact that you just don't have confidence in Jim McElwain, and I get that. But let's let's give Dan Mullen some time to, to get this thing rolling because it, it's not an overnight thing, and it's going to take a little bit of time. It's always taking a little bit of time to get the Dak Prescotts, the Nick Fitzgeralds, up to the level that he needs them playing at. And he'd probably make the argument that Nick Fitzgerald is still not up to the level that he believes he's capable of playing to. But you've got to just trust the fact that he's in better hands than he was, with, you know, and whatever Florida quarterback is going to be in better hands with Dan Mullen than they were with Jim McElwain. And it's not going to be, oh, here we go again. Our quarterback is struggling. Give him time and don't throw him under the bus after if, if and when he struggles in the first couple weeks of the season. Now we have to spend a little time the fallout in Starkville. I said it on the other podcast earlier this week when I had Dan Wilkin on from USA Today. There hasn't been a whole lot of people in Starkville complaining. And no one's cursing Dan Mullen out the door. No one's giving him a hard time. I think this is a fan base that realizes they were very lucky to have him for nine years. Eight consecutive bowl games is positively unheard of. I looked it up. In the 100-plus year history before Mullen got there, Mississippi State had gone to a grand total of 13 bowl games. And he went to eight in a row. So I think they wish him well, and they understand they couldn't keep him forever. But what's going to happen of that job? What's going to happen of that program? I think that it's in better shape than it ever has been. There's a chance to go in there and still be sort of a frisky team in the West. But Dan Mullen feels like a one-in-a-hundred type of guy with the amount of success he was able to have there. Lord knows the coaches that he you know, he came after really weren't able to do that. So if you end up with uh, Jeremy Pruitt, who's the defensive coordinator at Alabama, if you end up with uh, Joe Moorhead, who's the offensive coordinator at Penn State, or maybe a Chad Morris, there's some talk about him coming from SMU. Is there any chance another guy's going to go there and have any sort of success? Or, you know what, are they going to get a marginal name, he does a marginal job, and, th- and they're the doormats in the West again, lucky to win five or six games? 
You know what they always say, never be the guy to follow the guy. Be the guy that follows the guy. Right, right. That, that's the danger for whoever comes in and, and gets this job because they're going to get some really good candidates. And I think Jeremy Pruitt, I think Joe Moorhead, I think Chad Morris, I think these are all great candidates, guys who, uh, you know, what's to say they can't succeed at their next Power 5 program? But you're also looking at a situation in which they're going to be judged based on what Dan Mullen was able to do year in, year out at Starkville, which is make them relevant, make them a team that can be a top 25 team, that can consistently go to bowl games, that can do all these things, and, oh, by the way, do it in the nation's toughest division. That's the, that's the challenge, is that, okay, you know that Mississippi State is capable of these things. Those expectations are higher now. And while they might have you know, wished Dan Mullen farewell and they might have said, you know, we appreciate all he did for this program, those expectations in Starkville are higher. They're not just going to all of a sudden accept four-win season here, five-win season there. They expect to be going to bowl games year in, year out, and win games in the toughest division in college football. That's the challenge for whoever takes this job, and it's not going to be an easy thing to do. As we saw with Mississippi State, which had a pretty good year, by the way, oh, you still lose big to Georgia. You still lose big to Auburn. You still lose the Egg Bowl. How great of a season really was it, even though, you know, you won eight games, you were a top 15 team going into the final week of the season? Life could be a lot worse. Expectations are going to be higher for whoever takes this job over. But I do think that, once again, they're going to get one of those top up-and-coming coordinators, maybe a Moorhead, maybe a Pruitt, a guy who has had proven success at a big-time program, and that's essentially what they got in Mullen when they hired him. So it'll be interesting to see the way that this thing shakes out. But, I mean, you got to applaud Mississippi State administration and fans for the way that they have handled this. You know, a lot of attention given on the Tennessee situation, of course, for the way administration and fans have both been at fault for their lack of handling their coaching search. Mississippi State, you kind of have to applaud them what they've been able to do so far. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody lighting mattresses on fire on campus there, so kudos to the Bulldogs fans for doing things the right way. But here's another positively scary stat if you follow the SEC West, and if you're hoping for some balance in that division, I wouldn't expect it going forward. So this was year 11 for Nick Saban at Alabama. This was year 5 for Gus Malzahn at Tennessee, at Tennessee, at Auburn. That's 16 years of experience between the two of them in this division. The rest of the division right now, three years total. And I'm rounding up, by the way. I'm giving Ed Orgeron a full two years, even though it's really like one and two-thirds, taking over on an interim basis for less miles four games into the 2016 campaign. And then another interim guy just promoted, Matt Luke. We'll give him one year on the job. That's it. That's the list. Texas A&M has no coach. Chances are who they hire has no head coaching experience in the SEC. Mississippi State, no coach right now. Arkansas, no coach right now. There's no experience. You're going to have some guy come in, and not only is this the toughest division in America, as you alluded to, but you have Arkansas. God, where am I going today? You have Alabama and Auburn at the top with the best coaches out there. I mean, (laughs) I still think that this whole thing comes down to the Iron Bowl next year and the year after that. Just trying to penetrate one of these jobs and get something done is as hard as ever. I don't see how it's going to be any easier, no matter who these coaching hires end up being. Right, but at the same time, Mississippi State was able to have Dan Mullen for as long as it was because maybe Mississippi State fans have the most realistic expectations in that division. And all the teams in that division think they should be competing year in, year out with Alabama. And as we've seen, that's 
that's just not going to happen. I mean, Nick Saban has been the grim reaper of coaches in that division, and I think Kirby Smart is going to do the same thing to the East. Now, you're, you're trying to evaluate, you know, how long can a guy stay? Is a guy going to be able to have success? I think at Mississippi State, nobody is going to sit there and say, if you don't beat Alabama, you're gone. I mean, that, that's just unrealistic. Look at the, the track record that Dan Mullen had against top 25 teams, and he was still loved there. So I think there's a lot of staying power at Mississippi State for whoever takes this job. But you're right in that, I mean, this is a division that chews up coaches and spits them out. And you have to factor that into your decision if you are going to take this job. But, you know, I do think that there's a little bit more stability there than there is in other programs. And maybe even more stability than a place like LSU, which is just tired of, of coming up short to, to, to Alabama year in, year out. Now, if there is one more reason to believe that the next coach in Mississippi State has a chance, just look on down the road in Oxford. And as we've talked about on this show before, recruiting in the state of Mississippi, for the most part, is a zero-sum game. Not entirely, but it's a zero-sum game. A lot of those three-star kids in the state of Mississippi, they look, am I going to Ole Miss or am I going to Mississippi State? There's not a whole lot of options outside of that. And in Oxford, it's obviously down right now. The NCAA is still swirling above. Chances are going to hand down more sanctions. I don't think anybody believes Matt Luke is anything more than a caretaker at this point and an inexpensive one at that. Ole Miss was in no position to hire any kind of big-time coach at a big figure and a long yearly commitment. He's there because he's a convenient guy. But all those recruits that are running away from Ole Miss right now, they're going to go right to the new coach in Starkville. So I think there is a chance to go there because all that local talent, it's not great. It's not Louisiana. It's not Texas. It certainly isn't Florida. But there are some players in the state of Mississippi. And overwhelmingly, for the next year or two, you would think they're going to go to Mississippi State. They're not going to go to Ole Miss. That's that's a great point. I think that's something that – whoever takes this job is definitely going to consider because recruiting is the recruiting advantages are such an integral part of what you consider important in a job. And this is just the perfect time for Mississippi state to be able to say, we are that we are, you know, a legitimate top five or not top five, but top 25 program in the country. And whoever comes in here is going to have a significant leg up over the other big school in the state of Mississippi and we're going to be able to do things that, yeah, maybe took Dan Mullen a little bit longer to do. And we're going to be um, – our foundation is a whole lot better than what it could have been given the fact that Ole Miss is going to be going through some stuff in the next year, two years. You know, we, we don't know what those NCAA uh, punishment – what that NCAA punishment is going to look like. But you got to think that gives Mississippi State a nice advantage moving forward and makes this uh, maybe a little bit more of an attractive job than we even realize. Yeah, there haven't been a rash of decommitments or anything like that, but right now in the state of Mississippi, the top six-rated high school football players in the state of Mississippi, according to the composite rankings at 247 Sports, which is the tool that I always use, the top six, all of them, are committed to Mississippi State. you got one four-star kid and five three-star kids, Ole Miss doesn't have a commitment in its own state until you go down to player number eight. The top six going to Mississippi State. Oh, by the way, number seven, he's committed to LSU. So I think there's a chance for the next coach to come in there and do very well recruiting close to home and at least have the upper hand in the Egg Bowl, despite what we saw this past Saturday. All right. Yeah, I think it's, sorry, yeah, I just wanted to say real quick on Matt Luke. We, we, we kind of 
for, and that was kind of the story of the weekend, though. Like, that, that hire was announced late on Sunday night, and everybody was just kind of, like, fatigued from all this coaching search stuff. And it was like, oh, by the way, Matt Luke introduces the old, new Ole Miss coach, and where everybody's kind of like, wait, what? Because I wrote about him as being a lame duck guy, but the fact that he's taking over that program now, I think, maybe says, okay, Ole Miss realizes that it's going to have some stuff coming this isn't going to be pretty, and he's the guy that we want to weather the storm. I feel great for him because he's really worked hard to get to this opportunity. Players love him, um, but I think that says kind of a lot about the direction that this program's going in right now. Yeah, he was the only choice they can make, but he's a former player there. His wife is from Oxford. He has incredibly strong ties. If there's anybody who's going to put his heart and soul into it and try to do things the right way, it's Matt Luke. So will he be there for five or six years and turn the program around after the NCAA sanctions are over? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Is he going to be there for a year or two, win four or five games, and then they can hire an actual name coach at a big figure when the NCAA swirls out of town? That seems more likely to me. But yeah, th- there was no other direction for the Rebels to go. Matt Luke was the guy. But six and six, considering what's going on in Oxford these days, I don't think it's too bad, especially when you can punctuate it at the end with an upset of your rival in the Egg Bowl. All right, we're 44 minutes into this sucker. We haven't even talked about the SEC championship game. We've got to bring that to the table. A rematch, Auburn and Georgia, Saturday in Atlanta, the brand-new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Rematches are very tough to forecast. So as you see this matchup, what are you seeing? Well, I'm seeing a situation in which we really don't know what we're going to expect from Auburn because carry on Johnson's health, of course. The injury at the end of the Iron Bowl was probably the only thing that could have possibly put a damper on Auburn's monumental victory against Alabama. So to me, that makes it too tough to even give a prediction at this point if we don't know what his health is going to be because he is so important uh, for what that Auburn offense is able to do. But, you know, man, you'd be hard-pressed to see a team playing better than Auburn right now. I mean, this is a group that's firing on all cylinders, imposing its will against teams like Georgia and Alabama. That's that's unheard of this season. And the fact that Auburn just seems to have figured everything out, not really a team with weaknesses right now, I, I'm surprised that they aren't a little bit of a bigger favorite. But there are other reasons to suggest that Georgia's not exactly just going to fall over and, and just hand this to, to Auburn. I think this is going to be a, a good, hard-fought, down-to-the-wire game and, you know, go figure that this is the, the game that we end up with after it seemed like the whole season was kind of building towards that, that, that Georgia-Alabama SEC championship with Kirby Smart against Nick Saban. Um, really, really intriguing matchup that I think uh, can go a lot of different ways, but I, I am a little bit apprehensive to say that Auburn is just going to roll because we don't know the health of Kerryon Johnson yet. You know, predictions are probably the part of this job that I enjoy the least, but I'm pretty confident picking Georgia to win this game. And I, I know based on what we saw on the Plains in Week 11, that seems like a foolish choice, but like I said when we started off this segment, rematches can be screwy, and they're very rare in college football. They don't happen that often, but I feel pretty good about my Bulldogs pick just because, you know what, I believe in Kirby Smart he spent way too much time learning how to do this job under Nick Saban. He's going to break down that tape. He's going to evaluate everything he sees on film. He'll fix some things that didn't work the first time around. He'll accentuate some of the things that did work. 
And of course, you cannot underestimate the injury to carry on Johnson. We know Gus Malzahn isn't super friendly when it comes to sharing things with the media. There's no way they're going to get anywhere near a real injury report to find out what's wrong with this young man. As far as we know, he's going to be all systems go. But that injury at the end of the Iron Bowl looked bad. He's a guy who's been nicked up over the course of his career anyway. He's never truly 100%. Cameron Petway, that experience is just not going to happen. The guy we saw last year just isn't available, so you can't lean on him as your second guy. And you know what? The running back position has been, you know, it's just not what it once was in the game of football. But in this Auburn offense, it absolutely is. At Georgia, you know what? You can lose Nick Chubb and be okay. You can lose Sony Michelle and be okay. They've got other guys in the barn. But Auburn really doesn't right now. And and Carrion Johnson is an incredibly, incredibly productive and uh, just a, a player who goes about things incredibly. I'm, I'm running out of, you know, I sound foolish because I'm running out of ways to describe him, but he's the straw that stirs the drink for that offense. Running the ball, catching it out of the backfield, doing the wildcat, even throwing the little pop pass for a touchdown against Alabama, you cannot replace him. If he does play, he'll be way less than 100%. This is a nasty Georgia defense that has very strong up front. I think Georgia is going to be just fine. I don't think they're going to cakewalk it, but I think Georgia wins the rematch. That's that's interesting. And I haven't heard that opinion very much yet because, I mean, what have you done for me lately? That's That's the world that we live in, and Auburn has done a whole lot for everyone lately. And it'll be what I'm interested to see is how does Georgia make those those adjustments on the offensive side of the ball? Georgia has been able to pretty much impose its will against teams and say, yeah, we're going to run the ball, you know, 75 percent of the time. We don't care if our, if our quarterback only completes six, seven passes in a game. Try and stop us. And they weren't able to do that against Auburn. And you know those those edge rushers that they have for the Tigers. You know, we talk a lot about Jeff Holland and the presence that he brings for that defense. I mean, this is an Auburn defense that's playing lights out right now. And, and that's the biggest question I have is, is, is Georgia going to be able to say, okay, what we did last time did not work. We need to be a bit more creative in our game plan or else this is not going to work. We're not going to be able to just beat them at the line of scrimmage and just pound the ball, pound the ball, pound the ball. They've got to find new ways to get guys open. They've got to find new ways to get guys like Javon Wims in space. They need to be able to stretch the field. I don't know how they're necessarily going to uh, match up from a running perspective, but I don't think this is a situation in which Georgia all of a sudden starts winning that battle at the line of scrimmage and they run for 250 yards like it's just no big deal and it's the same Georgia that we've been seeing all season. So that's my question. I see this game as being low scoring either way. I keep going back and forth with my pick. Every time I look and see something, I'm just like, now I can see Georgia winning, now I can see Auburn winning. So. I can't give a final prediction yet. That's I know that's like the weakest take I can provide, but um, I just see this as being, as being a really hard-fought, low-scoring game. I, I don't see either one of these defenses really uh, breaking at any given point in this game, but um, I'm excited. Cause this is, I mean, this is a tremendous matchup. For all the talk that Alabama's been getting all year, um, this is still a premier matchup, and one could argue that this is the best conference championship matchup of the weekend. Yes, I'm disappointed that you won't make a hard pick on the show, but I'm even more disappointed that we're 50 minutes into the program and you still haven't plugged your own work at Saturday Down South. So, hey, we're making some progress here. If you remember when we talked leading up to the original Georgia-Auburn game, I said what would be big trouble for the Bulldogs as if they get behind 
10 points, 13 points, 17 points, and all of a sudden you can't run the ball as consistently as you would like, and you have to win this game on the arm of Jake Fromm. That's the one thing we had not seen from this UGA team, and that's essentially what happened. I know the dogs scored on their opening possession, but after that, Auburn really started to do some things offensively and defensively. They got up two scores, three scores, and that that's the Georgia team is just not built to win like that on the arm of a true freshman quarterback, even though what we like what we see from Jake Fromm. So that's the recipe for Georgia. Have to run the ball, have to keep this game close, have to get a lead and try to bleed the clock and put the pressure on the other side because all the pressure was on Georgia. This is also going to be a neutral site game, a borderline home game, because Athens is so close to Atlanta. It's not going to be the environment that that Jordan-Hare was, one of the more underrated places in all of college football to play. So I think there's lots of things lining up for Georgia and why I'm confident in this Bulldogs pick. The the health of Kerryon Johnson, of course, is a major ordeal. How much longer can Auburn keep playing at this level? Amazing performance against Georgia the first time. Amazing performance against Alabama. You never had the same team two weeks in a row. Can they possibly do that again? And again, this comes back to Kirby Smart and the things that he's done his career as an assistant. And can he bring that as a head coach? Breaking down this film, studying what he sees on tape, fixing the wrongs and making them rights. I think he can So I think there's a lot going for Georgia right now. And basically, they're playing with house money. Everyone's assuming that it's going to be War Eagle go to the Final Four. But this was a really, really good Georgia team for the first 10 weeks. They played a bad game at Auburn, and we've forgotten about them already. You know, they played Georgia Tech on rivalry weekend just a couple of days ago, and they look like Georgia all over again. So I'm all about the dogs here. So since you called me out for not bringing up any one of my columns in the first 50 minutes of the show. There it is. Here it is, of course. And I promise I'll bring this back to something that you said just now, because everybody wants to talk about the formula to beat Georgia, which is get ahead by a couple touchdowns, make Georgia throw the ball. They're not going to be as good. Jake Fromm is not built to do that. I get all that. Okay, so if you're Kirby Smart, you fall behind, I don't know, let's say 17 nothing in the, in the you know, or it's 17 nothing in early in the third quarter in this game. This is going to sound crazy, but this is something that I wrote two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it was. I think I know where you're going with this. Do you bring in Jacob Eason? That is the ultimate question because say what you want about the job that Jake Fromm has, Jake Fromm has done as a quarterback this year and the job that Jacob Eason has done or did as a quarterback last year. Jake Fromm had the better season. Jake Fromm, in my opinion, is the better quarterback, no questions asked. But Jacob Eason last year, six come from behind victories. Jake Fromm this year did not trail in an SEC game until Auburn. You're looking at a quarterback who knows a thing or two about overcoming a deficit, having to string passes together, string drives together, and win a team, win a game for his team late. Do you say, okay, I understand that Jacob Beeson has not been my guy all year. Jake Fromm got us here, but Eason might be the better guy in this situation. Do you think there's any possibility that Kirby Smart in the, in the back of his mind is, is thinking about that if that situation were to come up. Zero. And I would not make that switch under any circumstances because Jacob Eason hasn't shown me enough that he would, be, that he would make a lot of sense to come in in a relief role like that. 
And sure, he had some come-from-behind wins last year as a true freshman, but why did he have some come-from-behind wins? Right. Probably because the team he was playing wasn't very good, and probably because the team he was orchestrating wasn't very good. And do you really want to put a lot of faith in a young man because he threw a game-winning touchdown pass at a terrible Missouri team that didn't go to a bowl game? Eh, not exactly making a big throw in the SEC title game. You came here with Jake Fromm, you got to leave with Jake Fromm, and you can't be reactionary, you can't bring out the hook just because you have an arm on the sideline like Jacob Eason. He hasn't shown me enough that he can win a game like this. He hasn't shown me enough that he can show up in a relief role and handle the pressure and make anything different. I think Fromm is your guy. If there was any opportunity for Eason to play Minutes that mattered. I think we would have seen that already. And no, I think that that I think that chapter is closed in terms of Georgia football. This is Jake Fromm's team. Even if you're behind two touchdowns, even if you're behind three scores, Jake Fromm is your guy. And there's a reason why that he's in there and Jacob Eason isn't. No, I don't see that move being made no matter the situation. It's interesting, though. It is is it is a little bit interesting to think about. And I I've been banging the drum for for Jake Fromm all year, saying that. He's the real deal. People aren't respecting him enough. I get all that, but you're talking about situations here, and you're talking about, you know, it's it's almost like people people kind of make the comparison. If a starter doesn't have it in Game Seven of the World Series, you can't give him seven innings. You got to be able to say it's not your day. And maybe 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 there's a small part in Kirby Smart's brain that that says that. But I do tend to agree with you on that, and I don't think that it'll necessarily come to fruition. But I think it'd be really interesting to search Jacob Eason on Twitter if Georgia falls behind 17 to nothing in this game early in the third quarter. How many Georgia fans will be clamoring for him to get a shot? I think there were there were plenty of Georgia fans who would have liked to see uh, maybe maybe a switch at the quarterback position in the second half against Auburn the first time. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Kirby Smart is going to make that move. But just, just something to keep in the back of your mind if things get a little bit out of hand. I find this especially fascinating since you were a card-carrying member of the Jake Fromm fan club, if not the president. I, yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll own to that. I, I, I've said over and over, but, you know, he is a true freshman who has not been in those, those different situations. And Jacob Beeson, probably because of his play, <laughs> was in those situations where he did have to overcome deficits. And by the way, it actually would have been seven second-half deficits that he overcame if not for the Tennessee Hail Mary. So mm-hmm. just throwing that out there, and I bet you know everybody knows that. And, but at the same time, it's just something worth, worth considering. I, I do think this game, though, is going to stay close throughout. and that, I don't think that, that this will ever be a situation that we'll be talking about because I think these teams go back and forth. I think this game on a neutral site is going to be tremendous. The one final thing that I'll say about Auburn that keep, people keep forgetting is that Auburn won both of these games at home, the, these big-time games against number one at home. They're 3-2, three 3-2 and two, three and two away from home right now. I, I don't think that this is necessarily a lock. They lost to their two top 25 teams that they faced on the road in LSU and Clemson. They got manhandled at the line of scrimmage. So I don't think it's a guarantee that Auburn comes out with the same exact fire. But – if Auburn wins this game, man, that, that's a nightmare matchup to see in the playoff. I can say that. I just want to make sure all of our listeners understand that I had the stones to make an actual pick in this game, and you don't. All right, I'm going to make a pick. I'll make a pick right now. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Auburn 17 to 14. Wow, very low scoring. I'll give it Georgia 23 to 17. Go dogs. Okay. That's, that's 
fair enough. Hey, we both made predictions. We're both in the predictions business. <laughs> That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at Saturday JC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, SweetHop.com and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be downloaded. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.